Hi, this is Dennis Stefano, the original voice of the Buckinghams, and you're listening to Follow Your Dreams with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 199 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Gary Puckett, one of the greatest singers of the rock era and the lead vocalist of Gary Puckett and the Union Gap. The band had an incredible string of hits in the 1960s, including Woman, Woman, Young Girl, and Lady Willpower. In fact, in 1968, they had six consecutive gold records and were the number one best-selling act in the world. How about that? And as you know, in the middle of this episode, I'm going to do a song fest, as I do with all my musician guests. I've asked Gary to pick out a bunch of their hits, and we're going to play them, and we're going to talk about them, and nobody else does this in podcasts. And I always feature a song of mine in every episode, underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make it relevant. And in this instance, I have chosen my song called My Baby from my Miller Rocks album. Why? Well, all of Gary's hits were about women and relationships, just like my baby. So Gary Puckett, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you, Robert. I hope you are well today. I've been looking forward to this. Well, so have I. I have to ask you, you were such a big hit in the 1960s. You were kind of the American, you know, juxtaposition to the British invasion that was going on like crazy at that time. Tell me about what did it feel like at the time? Well, uh, you know, <laughs> it was wonderful. It was exciting. Um, it was um, uh, it was daunting. You know, it it raised all kinds of emotions. Obviously, uh, we were thrilled to be selling records. Thrilled to be getting out uh, and working with the likes of Chicago and Creedence Clearwater and uh, the Beach Boys and all the other great acts of the era. You know, so. Uh, it was uh, somewhat overwhelming at times, but it was always a, a great, great feeling to to have fans that that loved the records and uh, wanted to come and see us in concert. Well, I mean, you guys just knocked the ball out of the park. I mean, really, one after another, they were all great records. I grew up in New York City, and I've told this story before. We had three radio stations on the AM dial at that time that played rock and roll music. And you could just, you know, channel surf from one to the next. And you guys were just all over the place at that time. And it was a wonderful era musically. I just think that, you know, the, the two to three minute song was dominant everywhere. And, you know, you're playing with all these other bands that you've just mentioned. Did you feel in competition with the British groups? Not at all. Um, I love the British invasion, as they like to call it. But uh no, I didn't feel uh, competitive to it all. I simply wanted to be out there 
playing the music that we were playing and, um, you know, playing the songs, the hit songs that we were fortunate to have. So no, I didn't, I, I loved the British invasion and didn't feel intimidated by it or whatever. I was just glad to be a part of it all. All right. So how did the whole union gap thing get started? I mean, I'm sure you didn't start out that way. Somebody must have said, I got an idea. Let's put these guys in, in uniform from the Civil War, call them the union gap. Tell me how that all got started. Well, I, I was that guy. Oh, you were it. <laughs> okay. Yes, I was. Um, well, I had been trying to figure out in my mind how how we could go about getting a record deal, how we could go about making records, how we could get out of the the nightclub scene. We were then living in San Diego, California. And, you know, so the 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 whole kind of process of it all, which was difficult to take to take shape was going over and over in my mind what can we do to set ourselves apart from the rest of the business as you know and can probably remember well what we were wearing on the streets made its way onto the stage as well platform shoes bell bottoms hip huggers uh, tie dyes right velvets fringes you, you remember what we were wearing i remember i had them all yeah and that's when the uh the kind of uh, ripped up jeans came into the, the scene as well, you know, so there were holes in the knees and things were getting frayed and, and worn and all that kind of stuff. And, and um, I thought, well, this is all cool stuff, but we need to have something that's going to mark us uh, visually because it's a very, very competitive business. And I think that us having a look about us is going to be a very important thing. We were kind of a what's it I want to say a, a kind of a well-dressed pop band clean cut etc you looked the part no question about it yeah and we were just uh you know we were we were just middle American boys that wanted to be successful so um we were wearing what were we wearing uh blue blazers double-breasted gold buttons you know uh white pinstripe pants uh, they were hip huggers they were bell-bottomed Anyway, uh, I thought, you know, we've got to have a look. So I kept thinking and kept thinking, and I had found an agent that had put us on the road, which I got to tell you, the road without success is really, really hard, you know, without record success and all that. And you probably know that firsthand. So he sent us to Van Nuys, California, and from there to Seattle, Washington, and from there to Portland, Oregon, from there to Vallejo, California. Well, while on this trip, I got this idea. Mm, here's what we're going to look like. And I told the guys we're going to dress in Union soldier outfits from the Civil War period of time, because I think it's a great look. We can be the same and different. We can have ranks. We can have different hats. We can, you know, appear like we belong together, but not be identical. Wait a minute. I got to stop you for a second. I didn't notice on the uniforms, each of you had a different rank. Is that the deal? Yeah, that's what we were. We had privates and and uh, I think corporals and we had a private and a sergeant. I was supposed to be the general. I was going to say you must have been the general. Well, I was, but I wasn't. You see, the only bars that I could find that I was wearing were second lieutenant bars. <laughs> so, oh, close enough. <laughs> unless you were a military person, you wouldn't have known anyway. But anyway, yeah, that's what it was. So uh um, I told the fellows about it and they, they just thought it was funny and stupid. And um, 
And they said, we're not going to do that. And I said, well, if you follow me, you are, you know, so <laughs> we ended up going to a place in Los Angeles where all the movie producers go. If you're going to if you're going to make a movie about an Indian war, you get your Indian outfits there. If you're going to make a World War II, you get your World War II outfits there, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I went there and asked them about the Civil War outfits and they said, sure, we got them. And and they turned out to be so expensive that I asked if I could just rent one. So I rented one outfit and then I took the guys. We lived in San Diego and that's, uh, you know, just a short drive uh, south of San Diego. So I took them all to uh, Tijuana, Mexico. And I found a little tailor down there that uh, I just held the jacket up and, and he just nodded his head. Yeah, okay, I, I can do that. You know, he didn't speak English. I didn't speak Spanish. So your Civil War uniforms were made in Mexico. Is that what you're saying? That's correct, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but he did a, a superior job. And, um, you know, we just completed the outfit by getting boots at Flag Brothers or whatever else, uh, you know, was popular at the time and put some braid on the black pants that we had and all that. So, And we had hats made by somebody. So it was an outfit, um, you know, and we were working in a club in San Diego at the, it was called the Quad Room. And it was a typical rock and roll dance kind of club, you know, where we played uh, the Beatles, the Stones, the R&B of the day, like I say, a dance club. So uh, right. it was a popular club and we were a popular band there. So they came uh, six nights a week and we had a waiting line from about 10 o'clock until about 1230 every night of the week. And um, it was good, you know, so I had put together a portfolio that had uh, pictures of the band. I, I took them to a little, uh, a little ghost town that was east of San Diego, and um, they had a kind of a Knott's Berry Farm sort of ghost town sort of thing. If you've been there, and they would have the faux gunfights, you know, where the guys would okay. shoot and they'd fall off the roof, and they had a jail and the saloon and all that kind of stuff. So we took lots of pictures, uh, you know, with the. The, the the saloon girls and the the sheriff and the jailhouse and jumped over the tombstones and just had a bunch of pictures that were really fun you know so i put them on this portfolio along with a demo of me from the last band i was in singing something i forget which i think it was my prayer by the platters and uh what else oh lyrics of songs that i had written and you know, I treated it like a business and then took, them all to, took it to all the record companies in Los Angeles, most of which turned us down, saying, you know, they would do that, that Hollywood sidestep. Well, that's nice, but that's not my bailiwick. You got to go talk to somebody else. Hey, listen, you were in good company. The Beatles got turned down by 17 record labels, okay? <laughs> we probably yeah, were turned down by that many as well. But were you Gary Puckett and the Union Gap at that time, or this was pre- you know, forming that uh, image. We were just a local band in San Diego. Uh, we started out being called Gary and the Remarkables. It was a working title and we had the blue blazers and the white pinstripe pants, you know, but when we got the outfits, I thought now we have a place to really start, you know? So I had the portfolio and we had gone, we would work Monday night and not Monday night. It was, we'd work Tuesday through uh, Saturday what was it, Tuesday through Saturday, and have Monday night off. I forget. Anyway, we had one night off a week. Then we would go up. We'd go up to um, Los Angeles. We'd hit the pavement. Then we'd go back that night, work, 
Next day, we drive back to Los Angeles, hit the pavement, you know, to go all the record companies and all that. And we did that for a couple of weeks until finally on the way out of town, I'm going, let's just go home. I'm tired. Saw the sign CBS on the side of the building. And I said, wait a minute, guys, if a cop comes, go around the block. But meanwhile, just wait for me. I'll let you know if I'm going to be long. So I go inside and I asked the lady that was doing the phone routine, would you like to hear a new group? This was the receptionist that you were dealing with. Receptionist, yes. <laughs> okay. My actual words were, you wouldn't want to hear a new band, would you? Uh, you know, I wanted her to say, no, young man, we wouldn't. And I want you to go home and rest and eat and, and you know, get rejuvenated. But she said, go to that hallway down there, you see, and then go to the end, go to the second door on the right, and you're going to find a guy by the name of Jerry Fuller. And I said, Okay. So I went to the front door and I waved at the guys and did the circular thing, go around the block, around the block. So they took off. I went down the hall, went to the second door. It was open. I looked in and there's this fella pounding a nail in the wall. I said, what are you doing? He says, oh, hey, come on in. You know, so I said, what, what is that? He says, it's a gold record award. I said, I've never seen one of those before. May I see it up close? He said, sure. So I walked up to it. It was a gold record, a 45, uh, with Ricky Nelson's name on it. And the title of the song was Traveling Man. You probably played that song yourself. Absolutely. Part of my set list. (laughs) Made a lot of stops. I I love that song. I love Ricky Nelson. I looked forward to seeing his performance at the end of their show, you know. And uh, so anyway, I said, that's fantastic. He says, well, I wrote it. And it sold 4 million copies. He said, actually, I wrote it for Sam Cooke, but Sam didn't want it. So, uh, And I just, I took my portfolio and handed it to him and said, please, sir, would you look at my portfolio? And he said, yeah, I'd love to. So he was brand new, brand new at Columbia Records. Uh, his job was to find talent, write songs, produce hit records. So he loved my voice. He loved the idea of the outfits. He said, I have a song in my hand. Where do I see this band? So I told him he came down to see us, and uh, that's where he walked up to the stage the night before he said he was going to be there. And, and he, I d- almost didn't recognize him. He said, let's go make a record. And I just went, wow, oh, really? <laughs> okay, let's go. All right, I, I got to ask, what was the record that he had in hand that you said? Did he have something in mind? Uh, woman, Woman, Have You Got Cheating on Your Mind? That was our very first recording. Was that his song? It was not his song. He had found it through the archives, I'll call it, of Columbia Records. They had uh, a group called Tom Paul and the Glazer Brothers. Everybody knows them, of course. Of course, yeah. And they made this record, Woman, Woman, uh, very contrary in its uh, intent and purpose. Uh, Jerry said, I've got a pop idea for this song. Don't really listen to it exactly because we're going to change it around a little bit you know so uh i listened to the record and i thought well the guys hated it but i thought hmm okay well let's see what he does you know so uh, august 17th is when we went into the uh, studio recorded three songs woman woman uh believe me and uh don't make promises you can't keep which was a tim harden song he was a, a popular songwriter in those days Right. So uh, the three songs became our very first session. And um, September 17th, that record was released. And uh, it took a while. It took until almost Christmas time for it to, uh, 
to grab a hold. But now I see the, what is it I want to say? Uh, I saw my efforts to get this band dressed in something that gave us a visual. It gave us a, a kind of a leg up because there was a disc jockey program director in Columbus, Ohio, who was a Civil War historian. Guess what? He saw the picture that I forced the record company, well, forced, I negotiated, I, I did whatever I could to get them to put the picture of the band on there. They finally did. It was in sepia tone, that old brown tone, you know, and it right, looked right. pretty authentic. And uh, he saw the picture and said, this is one fantastic picture. What does this record sound like? He played it, loved it, put it on his station. It went to number one in Columbus, Ohio. And that's when the, uh, the Cleveland regional office called me where I lived in San Diego and said, did you know that you have a number one record in Columbus, Ohio? And I said, oh, really? And they said, we want to bring you to Ohio, to Cleveland, and we want to promote this record because we now have a foothold in the market. So I said, let's go, let's do it. You know, so they brought us back there, put us to work in a club called Otto's Grotto in the basement of the Sheridan Hotel. And in the daytime, we went out and shook hands and said, please play our record. <laughs> it's amazing. You hear this story over and over again, back in that era, one disc jockey in one place gets hold of a record, likes it and, you know, pumps it. And that starts the wheel going. And, you know, to your credit, that's great. It's, I mean, nowadays, of course, the world is completely different. That wouldn't happen be, in part because radio isn't radio anymore. Right. But so interesting that that's the way it went. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller. My new single, All of the Time, is a playful, whimsical love song. It's light and airy and exudes the happiness and joy of being in love. The reviewers love it too. Melody Maker has given it five stars and calls it pure bliss, an intimate sound with abundant melodic riches. Pop Icon also gave it five stars and called it ecstasy. You can stream all of the time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or any of the other streaming platforms. The links are in the show notes to this episode. And you can download it from the pgsstore.com. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast and give us a nice review too, if you're so inclined. You can do all of that and check out all of our episodes by visiting our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. You know, this is a nice segue into that second part of our discussion because you're talking about woman, woman. We haven't played it yet. I want to start playing it right now. I can't even begin to imagine what it sounds like as a country Western kind of thing. Maybe I'll have to find that somewhere and put that into the show as well. Your eyes meet mine And lately when I love you I know you're not satisfied Woman, woman, 
tell us your impressions. You were in the studio. You got this record. It's a country western thing. It's pretty far from everything that you're doing. You know, you're convincing the rest of the group that this is something you got to try. What did you feel like when you heard the record finally? Well, the first time I actually heard the record on the air was in the car with a fellow by the name of Steve Popovich, who is no longer with us, but he was the uh, the regional promotion director for Columbia Records in Cleveland. I got in the car with him to drive to the different radio stations in the you know the area that they serviced, and um, he of course had the the buttons programmed to the stations that they serviced, and uh, he was pushing the buttons constantly. And finally, on came Woman Woman, and I just went, "Oh my gosh, this is actually coming over the airwaves! How cool is that?" You know, so it was a very satisfying kind of exhilarating feeling that it wasn't on a tape, it wasn't on a a disc. It was, you know, it was on the radio. Wow, it was going out to the world, baby. Yeah. It must have been a lot of fun to to finally get there like that. So tell us what happened. You know, you got on the treadmill. The treadmill's now going faster. You got a number one record in Ohio. Where did it go from there? Well, um, we worked through that week uh, at the uh, Otto's Grotto. Maybe it was a week or two. It was kind of a grind. You know, we were still a brand new band. We were kind of hoping for chart success and we actually saw the record come on to the billboard charts in the 80s 88 89 something like that with the red star which they called the bullet and we were pretty excited that's it yeah so um you know they they kept promoting it and uh fortunately for us it grabbed a hold and jumped up i don't know how many points but uh that's when we started moving east because now we were going to be kind of on the concert trail, you know, and it was very, very difficult in the beginning because we didn't have, we had the machinery of the record company, uh, which was fantastic, but we didn't have the machinery of the traveling bunch. We were just five guys, you know, that drove ourselves, that, car. <laughs> that, that carried our gear, that carried it into the club, that set it up, that did the sound check, that did the show, that tore it down, that put it back in the vehicle and then drove on, you know? So the first few months were difficult and uh, exciting, but very, very tough. And a couple of us got really, really sick with the late hours and the early hours and the the winter and the cold and all that. And, and uh, so we kind of, we kind of struggled through that first part, but then we were able to add a couple of guys as roadies, you know, who could carry gear and help us with all that kind of stuff. And uh, we made our way East and um, you know, it, it was, it was fantastic. I mean, I, I wouldn't do anything differently if we went back. Um, so there we were. I got to stop you. I know that the uniforms made a big difference for you guys. I know that the the, the uh, DJ in Ohio made a big difference, but I want to give you a compliment. Your voice was spectacular, okay? And it was so definitive. It was it was it stood out from everything else that was being played on the radio at that time. And then when you followed Woman Woman up with Young Girl, I mean, it just reinforced just how good a singer you were. So I'm going to play a little bit of Young Girl now so everybody can hear that again. You led me to believe your only love to give me love. And now it hurts to know the truth. 
tell me a little bit about your recollections of that one. First, say thank you. Thank you very much for your compliment. I appreciate that. You bet. Well, you know, I remember with Woman to Woman, for instance, that um, it, it didn't just happen automatically, instantly, right out of the bag, right out of the box, you know, out of the starting gate. It, it took some time for that to take place. And I remember Jerry saying to me at one point, we may have to go in and record and try again, because what we're getting is split airplay. Do you remember that? Oh, A yeah. side and B side, and they worked against each other to some degree. What was your B side? The B-side was don't make promises you can't keep. Do you think I'm not aware of what you're saying? Or why you're saying it? Is it hard to keep me where you want me staying? Don't go on betraying. Don't and I like that record too. In fact, I sort of favored it because we really wanted to be rock and rollers, not balladeers. And the band hated Woman Woman for that reason, that it was me uh, being a balladeer and not the band showing their rock and roll chops, if you know what I mean. So, Such is life. Yeah. And once it happened, it was terrific. And we saw the record go up the charts. And now we're out playing concerts and things. And uh, Jerry wrote Young Girl to follow Woman Woman. And um, I remember him telling me that he was in the car one day and, and his brain was just going around as a songwriter's brain does. And he came up with that and said, I think I've got the, I think I've got the follow up to Woman Woman, you know, so what he would do is he would plan the sessions and he would get our arranger then was Al Capps, not the cartoonist, but the arranger Al Capps. And uh, he, he would get together with me and Al at Al's home over his grand piano and we would sing the song, find the key. And then Jerry would excuse me and say, OK, we're going to work on the arrangement. You're excused. See you later. You know, so that was kind of my. My only, what is it I want to say here? I liked the song. I thought it was singable. I thought it was fun. And in those days, we used to joke about how, how the airwaves were filled with commercials um, checkered with little two and a half to three minute songs <laughs> that had a, a 10 second intro over it that the DJ could go, and now here's the new record by so-and-so, blah, 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 and away they go. Young girl yeah. was not like that. You started right from the from the top. Young girl, you know. That's so, right. Yeah, it was, it was cool. Jerry had it together. He was a smart, uh, incredible producer, and um, uh, I give him all the, all the credit and all the glory in that regard. Well, there was... I wouldn't say a similarity, but there was a transition, if you will, between Woman, Woman and Younger. You knew it was the same band. OK, there are times when, you know, groups come out with things that are very, very different than second or the third time around. There are times when they sound exactly the same the second time around. But you just you guys had a transition, but at least in my mind, between Woman, Woman and Young Girl, you knew it was the same band. Well, I, I agree with you. I, that's astute and, and um, a great observance. Uh, Jerry was always a believer in the, the singer and the song. 
I think he believed in the song first. Uh, his song is a hit song. Because he wrote it, that's why. Yeah, he believed a hit song is a hit song. He just had to dress it up properly, you know, and uh, he was he was pleased. He could have sung all of these songs. Jerry's a great singer in his own right. Um, he had uh, local success in Texas prior to coming to Los Angeles to seek his producer's badge, so to speak. But uh, fortunately for me, the man upstairs went like this and said, go in this door. And I found him and we were a perfect marriage as far as that goes, you know, so so I'm a lucky guy to have found Jerry and, and uh, to have recorded these songs. All right. Let's go to the third song. Another big hit of yours, Lady Willpower. That same theme again with the, the female and the relationships. I think it again tracked your it, it, movement as a band. One thing you can be sure of, I'll take good care of your love. Tell us what your feelings and recollections are about that one. Well, once again, um, you know, Jerry had the had the thought toward the commercial value of a song, as well as the singability of the song, as well as the uh, the pop arrangement. And I think he was a big band guy in a way, you know, because like you said early on in our conversation, most of the groups were going toward a different sort of intent and purpose where we were totally orchestrated, you know, with horns and strings and rhythm section and all that. And uh, my recollections were going into the studio and seeing Glenn Campbell there ready to play acoustic guitar and Howard Roberts sitting there on electric and Hal Blaine sitting there ready to play drums and stuff. And it was all pretty exciting, particularly having had the two successes of Woman Woman and young girl. So uh, I think we started feeling our oats a little bit then. <laughs> so you had all the West Coast studio guys playing on these hits. Is that right? Yeah, we did. Actually, the it wasn't until the third album that we were allowed to play all the tracks and write all the songs. In the beginning, Jerry said, you know, um, I want your first album to be filled with hit records. So we're not going to write all the songs. We're going to hopefully have a big hit and then along with that big hit, you're going to have a whole bunch of other hits. So uh, we put songs on there by Neil Diamond and Sonny and Cher and, you know, just other people, the Bee Gees, et cetera. And I think he was right in his thinking. And all these years later, it's a lot of fun to play those songs for the fans because they bought those records and they played those records and they remember us doing To Love Somebody by the Bee Gees. or, you know, something by Aretha Franklin or whoever it was, you know, so, uh, and he was right. 
and the album sold and uh, we went on to make more hit records Good for you okay last one we're going to play is um, a little bit different this was a quieter song over you reliving precious moments we knew so many days have gone by still i'm so Tell us about that one. Well, a fellow came to me in, um, in concert one time, uh, somehow got backstage and he said, you know, I'm doing a, uh, a biography on Jack Webb. Do you remember Jack Webb? Of course. Dragnet. Da, 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 da. Give us the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Just the facts, ma'am. That's correct. Exactly. And I said, oh, Jack Webb. Yeah, Dragnet. I remember that program when I was a kid. I always loved watching it. And he said, well, I want to tell you that his favorite song, his favorite singer, and his favorite record have been Gary Puckett, the singer, Over You, the song. And uh, it just is fantastic to Jack, you know. And I thought, you know, that's interesting to me. I it, it never occurred to me that people of such status or, or such, what's the word I want, visibility would be that high on my recordings or my voice or that kind of thing. But then I started finding out through the years that, uh, you know, people um, thought that uh, B.J. Thomas was me or that uh, uh, David Clayton Thomas's record was mine or something like that. So... Uh, loved that song. I always called it the, you said the word quiet. I always called it the quiet million seller, but I find out all these years later that many, many people think of it as their very favorite. Isn't that interesting? You know, there are so many guys, you mentioned BJ Thomas, who was a great singer. Raindrops was just a wonderful song, but he was kind of a one hit wonder. And I don't mean that in the derogatory manner. It's just the, the facts, but you had a string of hits. I mean, the fact that you had what you did in 1968, six top hits in that one year, that's quite remarkable, but it established not only your longevity, but your credentials, okay? Thank you. And it's it's still with you, you know, 50 plus years later. Tell us now what you're doing these days. Well, this summer I was on a 56 city tour throughout the U.S., it was called Happy Together. The very first Happy Together tour was put together in 1984 and literally was kind of my idea. There was an office in New York City that was working with the Turtles and the Association, both great groups of our era. Yep. And uh, one of the associates in the office came to me at a concert that we were doing at Meadowlands uh, it was a, a big multi-act group and said to me, my boss, whose name was David Fishoff, I should say is, he's still alive and well, um, would like to meet you. And I said, okay, let's, let's meet. So I went into the city and I met with David Fishoff and with his associate, Howie Silverman. And uh, they said, we're working with the Turtles, the association, we'd like to work with you. And I said, okay, let's see what we can do. And 
within the next couple of weeks, I, I mentioned to them that they should put us all out on tour. They said, that's a good idea. And I guess they thought about it long enough. And um, they said, we're going to put you on tour and we're going to add Spanky and our gang to the mix. And we're going to call it happy together because of the turtles record. And uh, we went out in 1984 and it was incredibly successful. We worked eight months of that year as the happy together tour. And they put together a, a happy together tour in 85. And then then the happy together 1986 turned out to be the monkeys 20 year reunion tour because MTV had been playing the monkeys reruns for two years straight night and day. And now all the 15 year olds who had grown up were now mothers and had 15 year olds of their own. So that was a huge, huge tour in 86. In fact, it was a record setting tour for attendance as well as merchandise. And we worked stadiums all over the country and it was fantastic. So those are my, some of my recollections from those days as the beginning of the Happy Together Tour. Fast forward to 12 years ago, I think it was, they started doing Happy Together again. And I've been on seven of them since uh, 2012, 13, I think 15, 16. Uh, I forget the years now, 18 and 19. And I was just on last August, I was on that edition of it and this year as well. So it's been a very popular tour and trademark for the people that are, uh, uh, are the sponsors of it. So uh, it includes the Cow Sills, um, the Vogues, the Association, the Buckinghams, uh, Gary Puckett, uh, and um, the Turtles. And it's just, it's been highly successful. I think they already have about 40 dates booked for next year. So we'll see. You know, what it shows is how that music, which is, you know, again, 50 plus years old at this point, how it has affected people in a positive manner. It's become the soundtrack of their lives. I'm sure at the time, nobody ever thought you'd be doing these kind of tours 50 years from from then. But that's the way life goes. And uh, to your credit, you know, you're part of that grouping. And I'm so glad for you that it's worked out like that. We've been speaking here with Gary Puckett, a fabulous singer. He was the leader and the general, even though he had second (laughs) lieutenant stripes of Gary Puckett and the Union Gap. I'm never going to forget that you had different ranks in on those uniforms. I'm going to have to look that one up. It's been a wonderful thing to have you on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much, Gary, for being here. It has been my pleasure. And uh, let's stay in touch and maybe we'll do it again one day. I love that idea. And now we're going to listen again to the song that started off uh, the podcast. It's my song called My Baby. I want to thank you all for listening. And we will see you in the next episode. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.
I said I want to see my baby tonight. 